We're going to start in Mark chapter 2 today. He entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. And then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So the house is so crowded they can't get in. Their friend, his guy's got four friends who carry him on a sheet or a mat of some sort. They get up on the roof and dig through. So it would have been made of clay or maybe tiles like adobe or ceramic something or other. Most likely just mud and straw and sticks. And they dig through the roof and let him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus knows why they're there. Obviously, they've heard that he can heal people. And he knows they brought him to be physically healed. But he looks at the guy and he says, your sins are forgiven. And that's all he says. Of course he knows. He's not playing mind games or tricks on them or being insensitive. But uh, he knows this guy's sins have to be removed before he can be healed. He didn't say the guy had sin that caused him to be paralyzed. But there are a few cases where Jesus forgives the person's sin before he heals them. Not in every case. But sometimes our sin does lead to physical problems. Jesus forgives this guy's sin. And then the religious pinheads in the room start overthinking it. And they say, who is this guy? He doesn't have the authority to forgive sin. Only God does. Because Jesus is not looking at this guy and forgiving him for something that he did to Jesus. This isn't interpersonal forgiveness. This is an eternal spiritual pardon. Like, I erase your guilt before God. You see, there's a huge difference. Right? Jesus is not saying uh, something like, well, you know, can I forgive you for calling me a bad name? This would be like me saying, can I give you a spiritual pardon and you could get into heaven? See the difference? This is what I'm going to call this morning is the ministry of forgiveness. This is not us forgiving somebody who sinned against us. This is Jesus releasing this guy from his eternal guilt. And so the scribes and the Pharisees in the room said, he can't do that. Only God can forgive sin. And they're right. They are correct. You have to have authority to forgive sin. Only the judge or the president can pardon somebody from their crimes. All of us can't run around willy-nilly opening up jail doors and letting people out. Because we don't have authority to do that. So the scribes are correct. Jesus doesn't dispute them. They, They say only God can forgive sin. And then he just says, well... What if I am God? 
I'll prove it to you by doing something that's harder than saying, I just forgive you, I will heal him. Do you get it? Jesus doesn't say the scribes are wrong. Only God can forgive sin. But Jesus said, I have the authority of God. Because I am God. And to prove it to you, I'll do something that's harder than saying, I forgive you. I'll make you walk. So, Jesus claims that he has the authority to forgive sin. And it does take authority. Because you don't need authority to forgive your husband or wife or your kids or somebody that has cussed you out or punched you in the jaw or whatever. That's a blanket statement all through Scripture. We must forgive everyone. But this is Jesus forgiving in the name of God. And the scribes get that, and he doesn't dispute that. He says, yes, I am, and I'll prove it to you that I can. So this is Jesus giving this guy an eternal cosmic pardon, releasing him from the crimes of his sin. This is eternal forgiveness. And he tells us that it takes authority to do that. Jesus says, to prove to you that I have authority, I'll do this healing. So Jesus says it requires authority. The average person, again, cannot just go around pardoning criminals or sinners, either one. So Jesus does the healing. This medical miracle happens. But Jesus says it is to point to a higher, more important fact that he is eternally forgiven. If you were paralyzed from the waist down, you would be very, very thankful that Jesus healed you. But Jesus says this is just a sign pointing to the fact that you are eternally forgiven. Because salvation is more important than any earthly miracle Jesus did. He could have healed everybody on earth and not died on the cross and we'd all go to hell with healthy bodies. And none of it would have mattered. Yes, praise God for healing. Praise God for miracles. Thank God we can pray and he moves in our lives and fixes things. But pretty much all the miracles that Jesus did were of earthly value. And he says, they are to point to the fact that I am God and I have the authority of the name of God. I am the Messiah. And here's a couple of different examples of where he said that. John 10. The people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus replied, I have already told you and you don't believe me. The proof is in the works I do in my Father's name. You see, each individual miracle, I've talked the last two weeks about how much Jesus loved the individual person that he's healing or providing something for them or raising the widow's son from the dead and so on. It's done in great love and in personal relationship. But taken as a whole, Jesus says, the whole package, all the miracles that I do, are to point to something more important than whatever I do on earth. It is the fact that I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I have the authority of God. It proves that I say I am who I say I am. So, of course, each individual person that benefited from each leper that was healed or each blind person that got their sight, absolutely that matters. It matters immeasurably. But, taken as a whole, Jesus says, all of them together... It is a sign pointing to something higher, more eternal, more spiritual, more everlasting. Because I'm not just opening your physical eyes because that won't save you. I'm here to actually save you from hell. To forgive your sin and bring salvation. Next scripture also from John chapter 14. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or believe just because of the miracles that I have done. 
I tell you the truth, whoever believes in me will do the same things that I do, and those who believe will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Jesus says, believe me that I am God in the flesh. Believe that the Father is in me and that I am in the Father. But even if you can't, just look at what I do and believe that only God can do this stuff. My only point right now is that Jesus says the miracles are a sign pointing to something more eternal, more spiritual, even than a physical healing or even than a physical resurrection. All of Jesus' miracles are meant to point to something higher than the miracle itself. They show that he is the Son of God, that he carries the authority of the name of God, and he has the power of his heavenly Father. So every individual miracle is real and it's important, and he does it in compassion for the individual, but taken as a whole, he says that it's pointing to his top priority, which is forgiving sin, salvation. And when we look with spiritual eyes, we see that he doesn't just care about this man's body, but he first cares about his soul. Because he forgives him first, and then he heals him. So, And again, we can see that forgiveness is God's and Jesus' top priority because of the cross. Again, if Jesus could have done all the miracles that he did but not died on the cross, none of it would have mattered. It doesn't point to anything. They just become meaningless magic tricks. But because of the cross and eternal salvation, then they take on value and meaning. So Jesus' top priority is forgiveness, salvation of our souls from sin. And he says that all the miracles point to that and that they are to prove that he has the authority to pass out divine pardons. Not just to forgive the people who sinned against him, but to do the ministry of forgiveness, to actually release people from guilt. And then we come to John chapter 20. This is uh, on the evening of his resurrection. This is Sunday night of what we call Easter Sunday. John 20, 19 to 23. Then the same day and evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I think that's just hilarious understatement. I'll bet they were, I'll bet they were glad is a serious understatement. Another gospel says they thought at first he was a ghost because he just materialized in the room. But then he he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. Thomas is not with them this time. If you know the story of Thomas, this is why Thomas missed out. The disciples were glad. I'll bet they were ecstatic. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So Jesus appears to his disciples and he says, as the Father has sent me, I send you. And the word send in both of those occurrences in that same sentence, the word in Greek is apostolou. It's where we get the word apostle. He says, I send you. Apostolou means to send or to appoint. It would roughly correspond to the word deputize. I deputize you to represent me. Like a deputy for the Union County Sheriff is not the top authority, but they represent the top authority, which is the sheriff and the county and then eventually the state and so on. But deputize is not exactly what apostolou means, but it's a pretty good correlation. Jesus says, I deputize you to represent me. Just like God let me represent him on earth, I'm going to let you represent me. 
You with me so far? Okay, another correspondence we have in uh, our modern world to the word apostolu or to be sent or to be an apostle is uh, the word ambassador. So the U.S. government has ambassadors in most every country in the world, not all of them because we don't have relations with some of them, but uh, most every country in the world we have an office, an embassy, and uh, the bigger countries we have many, many embassies, but there's one ambassador. That person is an authority of the U.S. government in the foreign country. And they mediate or represent both directions. They represent the United States government in China or UK or France or wherever it may be. Uh, I'm guessing that U.S. Ambassador to Haiti has probably been working overtime the last couple weeks. Representing the U.S. to Haiti, what do you need? How can we help? How do you want us to be involved? Can we get food here? Can we get soldiers for relief work or peacekeeping or you know i don't know what all is going on of course but an ambassador is the legal representative of one government in another country he or she is a citizen of their home country but they live and work in the host country yeah they represent the interests of the home nation in the host nation and if there's a need where they live and work they can come back and call the president directly and say here's the need where I'm working, um, what can the U.S. do about that? Can we help? The word apostle, Lou, to send or to appoint, it very closely correlates to the word ambassador. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, but you live and work in this world. Jesus said, I appoint you, I deputize you to represent me on a foreign planet which is this one. Don't get confused. (laughs) Our home is in heaven. The government we represent is the throne of God on high. But we live and work in this world. Jesus said, you are my representatives. You have the authority of my name. Be my ambassadors. When the U.S. sends an ambassador to a foreign country, there is no higher authority than the ambassador, other than the secretary of state and the president. When they visit the foreign country, they rank higher. But otherwise, the U.S. ambassador to China is the highest U.S. official in China, Japan, so on. In your family, in your circle of your life, no one outranks you except Jesus and the Holy Spirit. You represent Jesus in your life. You are Jesus's deputies. You have his badge of authority. He says it right there. I send you just as God sent me. I send you as he appointed me. I appoint you as he deputized me. I deputize you. You are Jesus's ambassadors. You are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but you live and work in this world and you represent Jesus's interests here. And if there's an earthly need, you can go to the home government Pick up the phone and call the leader and say, hey, what can you do about this down here? You have a direct line to the king of the universe. And you can take the needs of where you live and work to that government. Jesus said elsewhere in the gospel, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. The father and I are one. And then here he says, just like God sent me, I send you. 
A whole bunch of you don't get it yet. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Just like that, I send you. You are literally Jesus in your workplace, in school, with your customers, with your coworkers, in your family. You are supposed to be Jesus. If they have seen you, they have seen Jesus. Supposedly. I'll bet they've seen a lot that ain't Jesus. It's true here too. Start with me. If you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen God. Just as he sent me, I send you. Your coworkers, your customers, your classmates are supposed to see Jesus. You represent Jesus on earth, just like he represented God on earth. This is how complete that access And representation is from Matthew chapter 16 in the message. You will have complete and free access to God's kingdom. Keys to open any and every door. No more barriers between heaven and earth and earth and heaven. A yes on earth is a yes in heaven. A no on earth is a no in heaven. That's how completely you have access to God and how completely you represent him in your own circles of life. He truly has trusted you with that much authority. So we're supposed to be doing and saying the things that he did. We're supposed to be living out in our lives on earth as it is in heaven. We're supposed to be making that come true for the people around us and at work and family and on our street and whatever that is. So you are Jesus at work, supposedly. Uh, You are Jesus in your family, your relatives when they see and talk with you, should be talking with Jesus. So that means in the family dispute over grandma's will or whatever is happening, you get to be Jesus, which doesn't mean you get to show up and boss everybody around because Jesus never did that. It means you are the one who gets to die to yourself so other people can be saved. Now you're really happy you came to church. I knew I should have stayed home. I don't want to hear about giving up my life. Come on. As the Father sent me to give up my life in the authority of heaven, so I send you in the authority of heaven to give up your life to save other people. So at work, in the family, at school, in the classroom, in the locker room, in the court, on the, in the store, on the street, we are Jesus in Union County. It's supposed to be. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus made it very clear. Heal the sick, hug the leper, raise the dead, bring the lonely into your family, confront the impossible, laugh at hopelessness, shine light in the darkness, give your money away recklessly, be forcefully peaceful, free the captive and the prisoner, love the unlovable, touch the untouchable, believe the unbelievable, and forgive the unforgivable. In all of this, we represent Jesus personally. We are the ambassadors of his kingdom, bringing heaven to earth carrying his name and his authority to our valley and our neighbors and the people around us. So we're going to go back to that verse in John 20. Jesus said, peace to you. As the Father has apostled me, I apostle you. As the Father deputized me, I deputize you. 
As the Father made me the ambassador from heaven, you are ambassadors from heaven now. And when he has said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Jesus did not change the subject three times. That is all one statement. I send you. Here's the Holy Spirit. Go and forgive sin. That's not three separate statements, and he's all herky-jerky all over the place in his sermon. He is saying one thing. I make you my ambassadors. Here's the Holy Spirit, because if you go and try to do this in your own flesh, you're just going to be Pharisees. Here's the power to back it up. Remember my first sermon on this topic. I told you authority requires not just the right, but the power to back it up, the strength. Here's the Holy Spirit. Now, here's my number one priority. Go and forgive sin. Am I right? There it is. He didn't change the subject three times. It's all one thing. He says that. So I'm calling this this morning the ministry of forgiveness because Jesus here is not talking about go and forgive everybody who sinned against you. That's a blanket statement throughout all the Gospels. The entire New Testament is full of that. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about go and release people from their shame and guilt. Be my agents, my dispensers of mercy and salvation. Give away eternal pardon just like I did. There's lots and lots of other verses we can look at where Jesus says, forgive those who sinned against you. That's not what this verse is about. It is forgive the sins of any. We are to be God's agents of eternal forgiveness. Let me say what I'm not saying, just to make sure nobody has a heart attack here. I'm not talking about the Catholic doctrine of absolution where you have to go to a person to get forgiven, to get into heaven. All right, if we were a Catholic theologian or a Catholic priest, he, he would tell you that you have to be forgiven by a priest, confess your sins, and be, receive forgiveness because they're the ones with the authority to forgive. And if you're not forgiven by a priest, if you don't do a supreme act of contrition, if you aren't have last rites and, and be absolved of your sin, then you have to go to purgatory and pay off your sins, which is ludicrously unbiblical. Uh, it's nowhere in the Bible. But, so I'm not talking about us walking around, laying our hands on people, pardoning their eternal sin, okay? That, that's not what this is. Uh, I don't need forgiven by a person. I need forgiven by Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not at the mercy of a church authority to forgive my sin. I am at the mercy of Almighty God. So, just to clear that up, I am also not talking about the kind of people who claim to be Christians and would go to a gay pride parade and hold up a sign, God loves you and accepts you just like you are. Because nowhere in Scripture is forgiveness unconnected from repentance. You have to want forgiven and be repentant for what you've done to be forgiven. Amen? So, those are the two things I'm not talking about when I say the ministry of forgiveness. But there is an authority to forgive people's sins because it's right there. Jesus said, I give you the authority. I send you out. I have authority to forgive sin. He said it in the story of the man let down through the roof. And he says, now just like God sent me, I send you. Here's the Holy Spirit. Go and forgive sin. 
So what does that mean? What does that look like if it isn't walking around willy-nilly just telling everybody God loves them and they don't have to worry about their sin or claiming that you have some key to the gate of heaven and if you don't forgive them, then they're not forgiven. That's, none of that's accurate. What does this look like? Well, it's, it's interceding. Um, intercession is to mediate or arbitrate between two parties. It's what an ambassador does. They work on the, for the good of both parties, both my home government and the place where I'm living and working in the, in the host nation. And so when, in the Bible and when Christians talk about intercession or interceding, that's what this is. It, to be an ambassador or to intercede is really the same as mediating between two parties. And God says, Jesus says, just like I did, you come between sinners and God and ask for forgiveness. Jesus was literally hanging in the air between heaven and earth, between God and humanity, and he asks for forgiveness for us. That's intercession. That's the ministry of forgiveness. From a position of obedient, compassionate self-sacrifice, that's the last three sermons. Obedient, we're under authority. Compassionate, we have to do it in real love or it doesn't count. And self-sacrifice, that was when I talked to you about suffering and your broken heart. Those three things together, obedient, compassionate, self-sacrifice. We are paying a cost to love somebody. We can pray from that position of authority and ask God for forgiveness, and he will grant it. We, you have been given the authority to rewrite history. Somebody sinned against you, and you forgive them. God says it's blotted out of the book. It's like it never happened. You have so much power and authority in your forgiveness that you literally are changing history. I am going to live like you didn't do that. And I'm asking God to live like you didn't do that. That's a massive power. To change the heavenly, eternal record of that person's life. I'm going to live like you didn't do it. I'm asking God to live like you didn't do it. I'm going to ask him for mercy and forgiveness for you. And we're going to strike that out of the book. Only the judge in the courtroom can say, strike that from the record. It requires authority to forgive. Only the judge can say, strike that from the record. God has given you that authority to erase it from the record. From his record of their life, you have the authority to release forgiveness. That is amazing. The power to rewrite the books of heaven. That is cosmic history. You get to decide what's in it and what's not. The jury makes the decision, but only the judge can bang the gavel and say, not guilty. And Jesus gives you that power to say, I forgive you. You're not guilty. So what does that look like in a practical life? Well, it does look like forgiving everybody who sinned against us, forgiving our spouse or our kids or parents or your coworker or your neighbor that you're in the property line dispute with or your terrible sister or your mother-in-law or whatever the case may be. But that's pretty much, that's a blanket statement. We have to forgive everybody to even be forgiven ourselves. But what I want to talk to you about this morning is the ministry of forgiveness. What does it look like to be Jesus's deputies and go and forgive sin? Well, 
I don't claim that I know everything about it and that I understand it perfectly. But the main way I look at that and the main way I think it applies is compassion and intercession, that we are praying for mercy for everyone we meet and deal with all the time. That we are standing between God and the sinners that we live by or work with or our family or whatever, and we're asking God to forgive them no matter what they've done to us. We're honestly begging God for forgiveness. Look at this passage from Ezekiel, chapter 22. God is speaking. I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, but I found no one. So now I will pour out my fury on them, consuming them with the fire of my anger, and I will heap on their heads the full penalty for all their sins. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. God has to judge sin. He has to destroy sinners' lives to be just. But he wants you and I to stand between him and that other person and ask him for mercy. He says, I'm looking for somebody to plead for mercy. And there isn't anybody. So I have to be just, to be a fair judge, I have to condemn the criminal. But I want you to ask me for forgiveness. In Isaiah, he sa- Isaiah prophesies the same thing where God speaks and he says, I'm looking for someone to stand in the gap, but there isn't anybody, so I'll do it myself. And he did. He became a man and stood in the gap for himself. But even though God has to judge sin, he's desperate for somebody to ask him for mercy. That's our ministry that Jesus gave us. It is the main point of us receiving the Holy Spirit. A couple of biblical examples that are really important for you to know, and I hope you know the stories, but I'll just briefly tell you. In Genesis, I think it's chapter 17, God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their sexual sin. He's going to wipe them off the planet with a natural disaster. And Abraham hears that God God comes and tells him he's going to do it, And Abraham, who the New Testament says, is the friend of God. Remember, all authority is relational. I told you that four or five weeks ago. Abraham, in his friendship with God, it says Abraham drew near. And he begins to intercede for Sodom and Gomorrah. Not claiming that they're not guilty of sin. Not erasing it or saying, oh God, you're too good to do that. Or we're going to pretend like you don't judge sin anymore. He just says, God, it wouldn't be just. If there's 50 righteous people in the city, it wouldn't be righteous for you to destroy them with everybody else. So will you please have mercy? Will you save the city? And God says, sure. And then Abraham confesses that it takes some guts to pray this way. He says, "Uh, God, I don't mean to impose, but what about if it's 25? And I don't know that I got the numbers right. What What if it's 20? And what, you wouldn't destroy 20 righteous people with all the wicked, would you? And God says, okay, no, I won't, since you asked. And Abraham says, well, uh, God, oh, what about 10? If there's 10 righteous people, it's still not just for you to destroy everybody. And God says, all right, I won't. And then Abraham and God part ways. And apparently God couldn't find 10 righteous people because the fire rains down anyway. But there were three people that he got out before the volcano exploded and or whatever it was that happened. So Abraham shows us what it means to be a friend of God, even when he hears what God is going to do, and God is perfect, and nothing he does is wrong, Abraham talks him out of it. And Moses does the same thing. If you know the story of the Israelites in the wilderness, you know Moses talks God out of things. Do you know you can talk God out of showing judgment? He wants you to pray for mercy and forgiveness for the people around you. In Exodus 33, after the golden calf incident, 
God says, you know what, Moses? I'm sick and tired of these people. I'm not going to the promised land with you. I will send an angel ahead of you and he'll wipe out all your enemies and he'll lead you to the land of milk and honey. But I'm staying here. I'm just sick and tired of this. And Moses falls on his face before God and says, God, if you don't go with us, Moses didn't sin, but he's including himself in the group. He says, if you don't go with us, don't send us up from here. We have to have your presence. We don't want your blessings. We want you. Moses is the only righteous one. Even Moses' brother was in on the idol worshiping action. Um, Moses begs God, please don't do that. Please be patient one more time. Later on in the story, God gets so angry with the Israelites, he's going to kill them all. And he says, Moses, stand aside. I'm going to kill everybody and we're going to start over with you. Instead of the children of Abraham, we're going to have the children of Moses. And Moses falls on his face and says, he doesn't excuse their sin. Moses is sick of them too. (laughs) It's quite a few times Moses complains to God about the people he has to lead. He's tired of their sin too. But he falls on their face and he doesn't excuse them. He doesn't argue with God. He just says, God... That would be unfair because you're not keeping your promise to Abraham. You are so holy, you cannot break your word to Abraham. That's the only reason you shouldn't do this. (laughs) But please have mercy and don't do this thing. And God doesn't bring judgment. He shows mercy one more time. God is looking for people to talk him out of punishing sin. He's looking for people who will have, carry the ministry of forgiveness. Because a true ambassador... Doesn't, a U.S. ambassador to a foreign country doesn't just represent America. They also represent that country back home to the president. They can call and say, hey, we're having this problem. What can the U.S. do about that? How can we help? And an intercessor, somebody who is ministering in forgiveness as an ambassador of Jesus, also not just represent God, but we represent who we're praying for also. In Daniel 9, Daniel is living in Babylon after 68 or 69 years of all the Israelites having been hauled off as captives, hostages of war, and they live in Babylon, which is now what is Iraq and Iran. Daniel finds the scroll of Jeremiah, which was written before he was born, and he sees that Jeremiah has prophesied that it would only last 70 years, and it's been 68 or 9 at this point. And Daniel immediately begins to fast. And pray and ask God to fulfill this prophecy. God, it's been, we're coming up on 70 years and you promised that we would get to go home. We would be free people and get to go home back to Israel, to the promised land. And in that fast, we have the whole chapter of Daniel 9 is Daniel's prayer. And Daniel says, God, please forgive us for our idol worship, for being impure, for chasing after all these sinful things. And Daniel continually uses the word us and we, even though Daniel did not do any of those sins at all. He's praying about stuff that happened before he was born. And then he was a teenager when the Babylonians came and hauled him off as a captive. He, was, he didn't marry a pagan wife. He didn't disobey God. He didn't worship any idols. But he says us and we over and over again, representing his people to God in the authority of intercession. He says, God, please have mercy on us. Please forgive us. We have offended you. We have sinned against you. I am part of this nation too. Do you see it? So Daniel never gets to go home. God keeps him in Babylon serving the kings of Babylon and Persia. But there are 
thousands of Israelites who get to go home. And that's the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and a few of the minor prophets. Even the story of Esther is during that time period. And in the book of Ezra, Ezra is sent back to Israel to begin rebuilding Jerusalem. And there are four or 500 Israelites who have gone ahead of him in a group a few years earlier. And Ezra comes to Jerusalem and he shows up and he finds that there are 300 and some men who have married non-Israelite women, pagan idol worshiping women who aren't Israelites and their children are not Israelites. And this is exactly how it happened before. This is what we were judged for. This is why God carried us off a hundred years ago. And Ezra freaks out. He tears his hair out. He puts ash and sackcloth on and he cuts his clothes and he goes and he falls on his face before God and he says, God, we have offended you. We have sinned terribly. God, please have mercy on us. Ezra didn't do anything wrong. But he owns the sin of his people. All through his prayer, Ezra chapter 9, it's we and us. We have slapped you in the face, God. We have offended your grace. Jesus did not just pray for us from heaven. He became one of us. He owned humanity and he interceded for us from a position of suffering with us. On the cross, he prays for forgiveness, the ultimate forgiveness. So when we are in compassion, when we are praying for forgiveness or mercy or salvation for people we love or even our country. We are not praying, God, forgive those miserable sinners like we're condescending to pray for them. It is God, forgive us. God, have mercy. We have aborted hundreds of thousands of babies. We have embraced sexual perversion like never before in the history of the world. We promote racial hatred and division. We are guilty of so much wickedness. God, please have mercy. Please forgive us. It's not some sort of judgmental or self-righteous prayer for somebody or we're kind of serving them by praying for them. It's us that need mercy. If you're in marriage trouble... Your prayer is not, God, forgive my husband. It's God, forgive us. God, have mercy. We need your salvation. If it's your kids or your parents in your family, it's God, our family needs your mercy. Please forgive us. Please help us. You know, because we can get offended with somebody and start praying offended prayers. God, my sister is crazy and you and I know it. And you really need to straighten her out and and you need to forgive her. And God, I forgive her too because I know you agree with me. Uh Uh-huh. No, God, we need your mercy. My sister and I, my dad and I, we need your salvation. We need you to reconcile us. It's not those evil, wicked abortion doctors. It is God us we have allowed this to happen we have done this we are all guilty together please forgive us jesus became one of us and from that position he interceded daniel and ezra are the examples of that they weren't guilty of doing the deeds but their prayer is we and us god forgive us please
So be people who pray in mercy. Colossians 3, I read this to you last week. It says, since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy. The other translation I read last week said compassion. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. We are to be ministers of forgiveness, dispensers of the mercy of God. Jesus deputized us to forgive sin. We have the actual authority to rewrite history. God and I are going to agree that we're going to live like you didn't do that. That's amazing. But include yourself in your prayers for mercy. Because the log's in your eye and the speck is in theirs. And I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and and I'm going to lead us in prayer, but I'm modeling for you what, what I mean when I say all of this. And I don't say that I do it perfectly or that I understand it all. Or even that this prayer is going to be perfect. It's not anything I rehearsed or wrote out or planned or anything. I just, uh, I just want us to intercede, to act as the deputies of the kingdom of heaven. Father God, we come to you in Jesus' name. We don't even take that flippantly or lightly, Lord, that you have given us the name of Jesus and we dare not take your name in vain, but that we be true representatives of you and not hypocrites. Lord, we take your name in salvation. We invoke your name now. We ask for your forgiveness, for your salvation, for your cleansing on us right now. We ask you to forgive our sin, to wash us clean, to make us white as snow, bright as the sun. Thank you, Jesus, for entrusting us with the authority of your name, with the authority and power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving us salvation, and not just salvation, but making us ambassadors of your name, of the kingdom of heaven. Lord, forgive us for not living that out very well. Lord, we want to be dispensers of your grace and mercy, of your forgiveness, of your Holy Spirit power. We want to be agents of love and forgiveness and healing. Forgive us for using our time selfishly or for getting offended with our family or co-workers or our classmates and people at church. Lord, make us those who are clothed in compassion. As Colossians 3 says, Lord, that we are clothed in tender-hearted mercy and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience, Lord. Give us grace. Lord, we ask for your mercy on us as a church. We ask you to forgive our failings, our sins, all the times that we miss the mark, Lord. We miss your mark in how you would lead us by your spirit. We make fleshly decisions. We have other priorities on our mind when we come to worship. There's offenses or failings abound, Lord. We ask for your grace and your mercy. Give us great grace, Lord, that we may accomplish your will and bear fruit that is valuable to Jesus Christ. Make us agents of salvation, of the power of the Holy Spirit, of revival life in this valley. 
Lord, we pray for our valley. We ask for your mercy in the Grand Ronde Valley and Union County, Lord. LaGrand and Union and Cove and Imbler and Somerville and Elgin and North Powder and all of Northeast Oregon, Lord. The people that we know and love and work with and go to school with. Our families and our friends and our neighbors, Lord. We ask for your mercy. We plead the blood of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we bless our neighbors. We bless our neighborhoods. We bless our cities, our county. We bless the people that we know and love, Lord. We ask for your mercy and your forgiveness. We ask for a blood washing. We ask that your Holy Spirit would move to bring salvation to our neighbors and classmates and co-workers. Forgive us for judging them, for being distrustful or even lazy and uncaring about the people around us. Lord, we want to see your Holy Spirit fire come in this place to bring restoration to marriages and families, to bring home the prodigal children, to restore marriages, to heal bodies, to set people free from their drug addictions and their porn addictions and unforgiveness and anger and greed and the things that bind us. Lord, make us agents of your mercy to remove shame and guilt, to preach the good news, to shine a light in darkness, to give people hope, to turn on the switch of faith in the hearts of our neighbors and coworkers, the classmates that are lost and hurting, the ones whose dads are gone, the ones whose parents have split up, the ones whose kids have run away, the ones who are hiding such terrible shame for what they've done in the past and don't think that God can forgive them, or they're full of anger and unforgiveness for somebody that hurt them, Lord, and locked up in a prison of hate, blaming somebody else for the situation of their life. Lord, make us agents of mercy and forgiveness, and hope in all of that. Lord, we pray for our state, the government, the people. We ask for righteousness in our laws. We ask for righteousness in our legislature, in the governor's office, and the judge's benches. We bless our police, and the local law enforcement, and EMTs, and medical people, Lord, and the school teachers and administrators and the county government, Lord, all the people who lead and make decisions and administrate our state. We bless them in Jesus' name. We ask, Lord, that you would open their hearts to hear your word, to receive the ministers of your gospel, that you would remove the darkness that's on their eyes, the distrust, even the hatred, some of them for the people of God. Lord, have mercy on us and forgive us for our sin. Lord, our state endorses much godlessness. We ask for your mercy on us. We bless our country. We ask you for forgiveness on us. 
Lord, we are guilty of so much blood, so much hate, racial division, sexual perversion like has never existed before. Lord, forgive us. Have mercy on us. Bring salvation. Bring revival. Let it start with us, Lord. Let it start with your people. The American church that is fat and lazy and rich and soft. And asleep. Lord, revive us. Wake us up. Turn us on. Light us on fire. Remove all the other things that catch our eye so that there is only you. That we would truly lay down our lives to bring your salvation and to bring your forgiveness. Fill us with the power of the Holy Ghost that is a sign that the authority of the name of Jesus that we can be agents of healing and resurrection where we want to represent you in all that you are in all of your glory and your holiness in your holiness and your purity where we bless your holy name thank you thank you for loving us thank you for your forgiveness thank you for being such a merciful savior thank you for entrusting us with the authority of your name teach us what it means to be an intercessor to be an ambassador of your kingdom to be a deputy of your name Move our hearts in compassion to love our neighbor as you commanded, Lord. We bless you and we praise you, Lord. I bless every person here in the name of Jesus.